the courageous made it out today. That's, that's awesome. I just, when I looked at the snow this morning, I thought, well, it's not blowing. It's not below zero. And so it's just a little bit of snow. It's like a normal day in Wisconsin, right, in the winter? Not too bad. The nation of Israel has reached a significant point in history as we look at Joshua chapter 5. About 800 years earlier, God founded their nation through the man we call Abraham. And they had spent 400 years in Egypt. They'd gone down to Egypt. To put this in perspective, it's almost twice as long as the United States of America has been in existence. That's how much time they spent in Egypt. And yet God maintained their identity as a people group, a, a group who continued to worship the, the one true God. They were in this world with, uh, of many gods, and they continued to, to stay with their identity and worship this one true God. Then the entire nation, as the entire nation, they left Egypt. And the fact that they still had a separate national identity after 400 years is pretty remarkable in that. It'd be like Eau Claire being all Scandinavian farmers 300 years from now. Is that kind of a good parallel? Maybe not. I don't know. So Israel maintained their identity as God's people, and they left en masse. And they experienced a miraculous crossing of the Red Sea, and they wandered for 40 years through the wilderness, the Sinai wilderness. They wandered, they camped, they moved, they camped, they moved. If you ever want to get an interesting account in a short segment of scripture. Look at Deuteronomy, the first four chapters, and, and read through that. If you do that, have a, have a map of the Sinai Peninsula and the, and the Israel, uh, Israel, Israel area when you do that. It's, it's actually pretty interesting to see where they went. And then they crossed the Jordan River, which was at flood stage, and God divided the waters. Last week, we looked at remember when Remember when. They established a memorial for that event so they would never forget. Of course, why? Why did they do that? Because people forget. Okay, we all forget. All tend to forget. We looked at the value and the role of memories. Well, today Israel's camped at a location called Gilgal. They've come full circle, returning to the land that God promised Abraham, where he, he had lived several hundred years before. And now they're poised to attack the city of Jericho. Could I ask you to bring the side lights up for me, please, so I can see people? Ah, there you are. So they're getting ready to attack Jericho, but God has something in mind first. See, Canaan was a land of a different culture, had different values, had different religious practices. They had witchcraft and demon worship, child sacrifices, immorality, and unimaginable evils that were taking place. And God was sending Israel into this land to change all of that. They were to establish a nation on the land, a nation of righteousness, people who worshiped the one, one true God. And eventually, in the fullness of time, they were, they were, God was going to send the Messiah through whom all people could eventually know God. See, this was a, this was a plan he had, starting with Abraham and the promised land. And Israel was about to engage the culture. They were to confront. They were to attack. They were to change what was happening in this land, this land of Canaan. But preparation was necessary. Today we're going to look at uh, some prep preparing for engagement. Ne next, next week we're going to look at the attack on Jericho. We're going to look at rules for engagement. Today we're going to look at preparation or preparing for engagement. I'd like you to turn with me to Joshua, the fifth chapter. 
Joshua 5, and uh, it's on page 172 in the Bible in the rack in front of you, where you can follow on the projection as well. Joshua 5. Now when all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and all the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until we had crossed over, their hearts melted and they no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites at Gibeoth Haraloth. Now this is why he did so. All those who came out of Egypt, all the men of military age, died in the desert on the way after leaving Egypt. All the people that came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the desert during the journey from Egypt had not. The Israelites had moved about in the desert 40 years until all the men who were of military age when they left Egypt had died since they had not obeyed the Lord. For the Lord had sworn to them that they would not see the land that he had solemnly promised their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So he raised up their sons in their place, and these were the ones Joshua circumcised. They were still uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And after the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the place has been called Gilgal to this very day. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped that day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate of the produce of Canaan. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he stood up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or are you for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, for the place you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now there are, there are kind of four preparation points or four principles for engagement. This is part of the preparation before they actually went in to engage in Jericho. And uh, I want to look at each one of those today. It's, it's not this great flowing uh, theme, but it basically these were all parts of preparation before they were ready to go into the, the land of Canaan. Four principles for engagement. The first, first principle is God acts, people react. God acts, people react. We find that God is the initiator of all things. See, everything begins with God. Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning, God. And in this passage, when the Amorites and Canaanites heard what God had done, they dried up the Jordan, probably had spies watching. They witnessed this miracle. They spread the word. And what were, what were their reactions to that? Their hearts melted. It said there was no spirit in them. See, these Canaanites, these Amorites, they had, their, they had gods. They had gods. But these were gods they had to appease. They were idols, they were images, they were fertility gods. They worshiped the sun, moon, and stars. They had to initiate contact with their gods. They had to pray to and try to appease or please their gods. They had to beg their gods to act. They took action 
and their gods reacted. But they had never seen anything like this. A God who acted on behalf of his people. A, a God who initiated action, a God who started something, a God who controlled natural events. They had not ever seen or ever heard of anything like this God. Isaiah 64, 4, you just write this down, I don't think I have it in your notes, but it says, since ancient times no one has heard, no ear perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. A God who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. A God who acts, initiates for his people. In January, just a month and a half ago, um, Pastor Kirk Militzer, he's a pastor of, of, of Bethesda Lutheran Brethren, he's a really good friend of mine. Um, he took a, ch a trip to Chad in Africa to visit missionaries that they support as a church. And he traveled out into the bush, he told this story, and traveled out into the bush with missionaries and two native pastors to a place where all the population were Muslims and they were totally unreached. They had never heard the gospel. They'd never heard anything about Jesus. And, and the team that was there had drilled a water well for this village and <clears throat> it found out that they had previously had to walk four hours every day to get water. Now they had their well. So they came to listen, and as he watched, the missionary told him to observe these native pastors, these pastors that were from the country, and they were gonna share the gospel, the good news about Jesus to these people. And he said, they're gonna share this news to people who have never heard it before. Now it's hard to imagine growing up in America. We've, we've heard little bits and pieces from the time we were kids, whatever about this Jesus and about God and Christianity. We have Easter, Christmas, we have all these Christian holidays. So it's like we've, everybody's heard of something. These are people that had never heard about this God who sent Jesus. They'd never heard about Jesus. They'd never heard about a God of love who cared, a God who acted on their behalf to send Jesus alive. And Kirk said he watched their response. And as he shared it with the pastors in this group, he was in tears sharing the reaction to these people who heard the message for the very first time. Amazing. He, he had never experienced that before. These people, these Amorites, and they, they had never heard about this God who acted on behalf of his people. We have no idea how revolutionary this was and is for people today. A God who loves and acts on behalf of his people. Our God, see God acts, people react. We're surrounded by people who worship a lot of different gods. A lot of different gods. They're not always obvious about it. They don't go out into their garage and bow down and say, oh, thou great BMW, oh, thou great BMW. Bring me joy, bring me fulfillment, bring me status, bring me happiness. But they bow down nonetheless. 
They don't go down to their bank and go to the vault and open their safety deposit box, bow down to their stock certificates and mutual funds and bonds. Grow and multiply. Bless me in my old age. Bring me serenity, senility, and security all the days of my life. Oh, money from Wall Street. No, they don't do that. We don't see people out in front of their house bowing down to their house, saying, Giving me, give me joy, meaning, and security, or worshiping at their place of employment and, and worship their work. They may be workaholic and work overwork, but, but they usually don't do that. People worship their job, money, possessions, pleasure. Whatever is most important to us can be our God. But we're too sophisticated in the year 2019 in America to have idols like they did. Instead, we worship sports and pleasure and recreation, even ourselves, in hedonistic pleasure-seeking, bodybuilding, facelifting, tummy-tucking, liposuction, eye-lasered vanity. Now, there's nothing wrong with money, possessions, houses, or boats, or sport, or recreation, or even tummy tucks. Some of us may need a tummy tuck someday. I don't know. But what is most important? Our gods that we worship are literally worthless. And when our God, the one true God, acts, he does his thing, people react. And we begin to understand how incredible our God is, how revolutionary, how unique our God is. A God who acts on behalf of his people. And people react. Now, there are two ways they react, either believe or, belief or unbelief, but that's a whole other story. So God acts and people react. This was the beginning of, of chapter five. Number two, we find that being precedes doing. Being precedes doing. Verse two, at that time the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. Now, this has to do with circumcision. Now, most people say, what in the world does circumcision have to do with anything? Okay, what does it have to do with anything? Circumcision was how they entered into the covenant with the living God. Now, God set it up, you know, and that's the way he did it. Circumcision. Now, and none of the men born during the 40 years of the wilderness had been circumcised. God initiated circumcision with Abraham. And circumcision was an external act signifying an internal reality. The internal is be, resulted in external do. It's the cutting away of the old and entering a covenant relationship. It was God's way of demonstrating death to self I'm giving up my agenda, my priorities, and my values and entering into a relationship with God. In Colossians 2, in the New Testament, it says, In him you were also circumcised and putting off the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. Circumcision for the men of Israel was a way to renew their relationship with God. It's not part of the New Covenant, part of the Old Covenant. In the New Testament, for us, we are circumcised, as it says, with a circumcision without hands, with, with the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Jesus Christ. A circumcision of Jesus Christ. You are, I am crucified with Christ. I am dead with that. When we give our life to Jesus, submit to him, our old self and flesh dies and it's removed to make room for the new life. It's called death to self, giving up my way, giving up my gods and 
taking on that relationship with God. Now, if I want to engage my culture and make a meaningful difference, I must die to self and give up my old ways. And in Colossians, it says, says, uses the term buried with him in baptism. Most of us are a little bit more familiar with baptism than circumcision in regard to the covenant. Baptism is an external act signifying an internal reality. You go down into the water, you're buried in baptism, and you come up in new life. Death to the old, resurrected to the new. By the way, infant baptism, we don't have time to go into this hugely, but infant baptism comes from this parallel between circumcision and baptism, the passage we just read. In circumcision, infants were brought into the covenant relationship with God by their parents. Typically, this was done about day seven. And then they were entered into the covenant. Later, individuals had to choose to follow God or reject God, even though they had been entered into covenant by their parents. That circumcision was then baptism now. And it signifies entrance into the covenant relationship with God. Now, a note here, just an interesting note. Circumcision as an infant or adult were both practiced in the Old Testament. Circumcision as an adult or infant were both practiced in the Old Testament. And baptism as an infant or adult are practiced today. And both are accepted by the Wesleyan Church, by the way, just so you know. So prepare for engagement. Circumcision was was a demonstration of death to self and death to the old life in obedience to God. And if we're going to do something for God, first we must be. Being precedes doing. Everybody with me? Okay, now we're going to move to Passover. Okay, real quick. <laughs> Second part of being precedes doing is the Passover. The Passover was a worship celebration in which the Israelites remembered one of God's incredible acts of deliverance. It was the last sign that God performed, which in essence freed them from Egypt. We don't have time to be exhaustive, but basically they said, you're going to take a lamb and you're going to shed the blood. You're going to kill this animal, shed, put the shed blood on the doorposts. And when the angel of death comes by and he sees the blood on that doorpost, he's going to pass over you. That blood, the death of that lamb is going to save your life and help you to live again. Okay? And, and for those Egyptians that didn't have that, they had a death in their family. That was the final sign that God performed before Pharaoh finally said, you're out of here. And they escaped. A life was taken, for their life was spared. There was something called substitutionary atonement. A, a lamb died in their place. And the blood signified that life was taken to pay for their deliverance. And Passover was a demonstration of deliverance from death, deliverance to life. And for us, as we look at what that means today, once we have been born again, we celebrate communion. We just celebrated communion last Sunday, the Lord's Supper, to remember that there was a death that occurred and blood that was shed so that we could experience new life, okay? Passover, communion, the Lord's Supper. These parallels that, that happen. The life of Jesus was taken as bloodshed so that we could live. And we must be before we can do. Being precedes doing. 
The third, preparing for engagement as we prepare to move forward, is change is essential for growth in action. Change is essential for growth in action. Verse 11, it says, the day after the post Passover, that very day they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate from the produce of Canaan. This, this miraculous food called manna was given to the nation of Israel. God had taken care of the food needs of this nation for 40 years. Now, I don't know about you, but I think... I think I would have been tired after eating the same thing for 40 years. Some people like to have the same thing for breakfast or dinner or certain days, whatever, whatever. But whether your favorite food is pizza or ribs or Indian food or steak or whatever it is, sooner or later, you need variety. I do. There's only so much you can do with manna. Okay, you got manna rolls and manna cakes and manna cereal and manna patties and manna steaks and manna cotti. <laughs> Stuffed manna, manna cordon bleu, manna Oscar, pepper manna, but manna bread. You know, I mean, there's a lot of things you can do. <laughs> the, the, the Betty Crocker manna cookbook was a bestseller back then. But manna represented for the nation of Israel the familiar, the secure, and the consistent. And even though they were living in the wilderness life, it was very predictable. And they, they'd grown accustomed to this predictable life. They would camp. They would break camp, they would march, they would camp and eat manna, okay? They would camp, they'd break camp, they'd march, they'd camp, eat manna, okay? It was familiar, it was secure, it was consistent, it was predictable, it was changeless. They knew what was gonna happen. Now, the call for change, and change is tough, but Israel had to change. In order to enter the promised land, to eat the produce of the land, to experience all that God had for them, they had to change, change. And in order to experience all of his grace, provision, and power, the manna had to stop. It was a big change. It was a huge, huge change for them. But change was essential for growth and action. Now, if, if we took a survey today um, of, of who likes change and who doesn't like change, we're gonna be all over the map, okay? And some things we like change, some people don't like change, but change is a reality. And, and if the nation of Israel was gonna go in and, 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 and do something and occupy this land and become all that they had, they had to change, there had to be change. And, and we as a church also, we've experienced change in our church the last four years, okay? Some people like to camp, some people like to march. Some people like to go fast, some people like to go slow. Some people like more risk, some people like everything safe. There, there's a very thing. Camping is very secure and stable and consistent and, and where everybody knows everybody. You come into the sanctuary and everybody sits in the same place and you know where they're gonna be. And you know, th th these are things that uh, we are creatures of habit and, and we don't necessarily like change. We know everybody. We know everybody else's kids and grandkids, parents, uncles, aunts, cousins. We know everybody's business. We like that, don't we? Now, change. Change is unsettling. It's unsettling. Change is uncomfortable. But change is essential for us to grow individually as well as corporately. And God has called us to change as a church. And we've experienced that. God's 
sent new people. We have some new songs and new styles of music. New, new ways to do things. Sitting and standing. You got, got two strange pastors. You know, this, all those things. New style of leadership. And the longer we've been in a routine, the harder it is to change. For some, change is no big deal. Others, not so much. And let me say something. Change and adapting to change has nothing to do with age. One, one person of great inspiration to me, when we went to, to Wichita, Kansas a few years ago, we were, uh, we were supposed to come in and bring change, and it was traumatic. But there's one woman who is a great inspiration to me. Her name was Mary. And uh, Mary was 94 years old. See, it has nothing to do with age. And she said, and I quote, I love change. It's an adventure. <laughs> 94 years old, Mary. An amazing, amazing woman. Did you know when television first came out, people said of that little black and white screen, they said, nobody's ever going to watch that thing. Nobody's ever going to watch that thing. And when computers were invented, they were so large they filled an entire room. And an IBM executive said, and I quote, I think in the future there might be a need for only five computers in the whole world. Of course, now the whole computer fits in an iPhone and the television fills the whole room. Just a little bit of a change there. Change. Well, God will help us through changes. And he will not stop the manna until he begins the produce of the land. Change is essential for growth and action. And as God moves us forward as a church, he's going to bring change. Finally, in preparing for engagement, we find the battle belongs to the Lord. The last part of this passage. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a sword drawn in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? He said, neither. But as a commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Joshua was by Jericho, probably in prayer. He was probably looking at those walls. So how in the world are we going to defeat Jericho? Looking at the walls, looking at the physical obstacles and looking at his physical resources. And who appears to him? It's called the commander of the army of the Lord. Now many believe that this was the pre-incarnate Jesus. Like the fourth man. Remember the fourth man that appeared in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Many people believe that that was the son of God, the pre-incarnate Jesus. And Joshua asked this person... Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? And he says, neither. He says, I'm for God. I'm for God. Not that God is on their side, but Israel is to be on God's side. Israel is to fight God's battles. Not is God on my side, but am I on God's side? See, this was God's plan. This was God's war. It was fought in the angelic and the spiritual realm. The Israelites were part of God's army. The vast majority were the Lord's hosts, the angelic warriors, the angelic beings. And God said, I'm coming with my heavenly army to make war on the Canaanites, and I will fight and I will win the battles for you. It wasn't done only in the spiritual, it was done also in the physical. We are in a war for the soul of our nation. We are in an incredible war for the soul of our nation. Rampant immorality, 
open homosexuality, militant transgender activity, undisguised infanticide. It's unbelievable. We're at war, a, a, a spiritual war and the physical war. It always works its way out also in the physical. I wanted to, I, I pulled a clip out of Candace Owen. Candace Owens is an African-American who spoke at CPAC last week. And I want to just play a little clip of what she said, just a two-minute clip. In New York City, for those of you that don't know, more black babies are aborted than born live. A hard-hitting truth is that the most unsafe place for a black child is not on the streets, it's not when they see a police officer, it's in their mother's womb. Let me repeat that. In New York City, there are more black babies aborted each year than born alive. The most unsafe place for a black child is not on the streets, not when they see a police officer. It's in their mother's womb. And they celebrated, the mayor celebrated that. We got a battle, we, do we have a problem? It, th th that is, it's infanticide. I mean, we're seeing what, what we saw in Canaan, we're seeing in New York City and other parts of this country in America. Now, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it works its way out in flesh and blood. Many times we say, well, we're just gonna, we're gonna stay away from that stuff, we're gonna pray. People, we have to be engaged. There has to be an engagement in whatever that is, whatever battle there is out there. Our battle is against flesh and blood. It's not against flesh and blood. But we must know the character of our warfare. First Corinthians, this is in your notes. 10, three through five. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. The battle of truth, the ideas, the pretensions, the, 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 the incredible lies that are being told today. And the battle, we have an incredible battle that's going on. And many times we think, you know, I'm just going to pray, and we need to pray. We need to, but we also need to engage. This battle in the nation, now they used war. I'm not saying we use war. But they used everything available to them to dispossess and take control for righteousness. And we need to rethink this because so, for so long the church has been isolated and said we're just going to stay in our church building and we're going to stay safe and we're going to just let happen out there happen. And we're going to pray here and hope that God delivers us. He may need you to run for city council. He may need you in a key position where you work to speak out and exercise influence. We can't be passive. We have to engage the culture. 
In Ephesians 1, 22 to 23, it says, and God has placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. We are to fill everything up. Exercising our influence in every part of culture. In Ephesians 6, 10 through 12, it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We must choose to stand. The battle belongs to God. The question is, are we on God's side? We can say God's certainly on our side. That's not the question. The question is, are we on God's side? The question I have to ask is, am I as grieved at infanticide as God is? Do I hate evil like God hates evil? Do I love people so much that I want to see them delivered from, from the bondage of, of sin? We ought to be grieved by what we see around us. Everybody is, is gonna be called in a different way to take action. But if we're gonna be engaged in the battle, we can't be passive, we can't just sit. The battle belongs to God, but the question is, are we on God's side? So where did Joshua meet the commander of the Lord's army? He met him in prayer, he met him in prayer. Where do we meet the commander of the Lord's army? We also meet him in prayer. As we move through this series, we're gonna, next week we're gonna look at the rules of engagement. And I hope that we can be challenged in saying, God, how is it that you want us to be engaged in this kingdom battle? This is a, this is, the principles are largely the same. The setting is different. But we are in a war for the soul of our nation. And God's people must be engaged in the battle on God's side, whatever that means. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who loves us. You are a God who cares about every person. And Father, you have raised us up for such a time as this. And I, I just pray, God, that you would envision us as a congregation that you would envision us as a people, that you would envision us as individuals as to what our role is. We can't stand passive. And I just pray, Lord Jesus, that we would again be filled with your Holy Spirit to take action. In Jesus' name.